Well, it's a real delight uh, to be here with you today uh, and to be speaking this time. Normally, uh, when I come, I'm sitting there listening along with you. Uh, and I am so thankful to Chris and to the others who put this on so faithfully uh, several times through the year. And I've benefited so, so much from it, as I'm sure you have uh, over the years. But it's a particular delight uh, to be with you here today to be uh, speaking from Malachi. Uh, as I said, uh, the reason that I thought of doing Malachi was uh, because of the commentary that a friend of mine wrote. And as I've gone through it, as I've uh, worked on these talks, as I've read through it, as I've read through uh, that commentary as well, I've been so blessed uh, by God, by his words, and I pray that we'll be blessed today as well. I'm not sure about you, but I've often thought that the relationship metaphor for the Christian life is a fairly shallow one. I'm sure you've heard that it's said that Christianity is not about uh, what you do, but it's about having a relationship. It's about having a relationship with Jesus. And I suppose there's something uh, true about that. There's a grain of truth in that statement. I understand what people are trying to say through that. But the problem is that there are different kinds of relationships. There are quite obviously, some relationships that are going well and some relationships that are not going very well. So two married people on the brink of divorce are in a relationship, but it's not a, a very healthy relationship. Or a child who is estranged from their parents is in a relationship with their parents. They can't, they can't avoid that. But it's not a healthy relationship. It's an estranged relationship by definition. In fact, I think that I want to argue that everybody in the world is in some kind of relationship with God. It's just that for most people, the kind of relationship that they have with God is an estranged relationship. And so it is in the book of Malachi, I think, that the people that God is speaking to are people who are in a relationship with God, but the relationship is not in a very healthy position. What's so disturbing, I think, about the book of Malachi is that the people think that their relationship with God is actually pretty good. <laughs> they kind of think that they've got their relationship with God nailed and that if there is something wrong with the relationship, then it's not on their side, but it's on God's side. God's letting down his end of the bargain. Malachi, then, is a little bit like a book of marriage counselling where God sits down with his people and says, look, let's talk about our relationship and let's talk about how it's going and where we're at. Well, the book starts by uh, identifying itself as an oracle, according to verse 1. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. An oracle is not a word that we use uh, very often these days, except perhaps in sort of a B-grade film or something like that, where someone's at a county fair and there's, uh, there's an old gypsy woman who's, uh, you know, telling fortunes and who suddenly shrieks and, uh, you know, falls off a chair and uh, whatever it is because she thinks she's seeing the future. But this oracle from God is no gypsy fair kind of event. This is a true word from the living God. It is a word from God. It's an insight into something that the people hadn't seen before. 
And the oracle is through Malachi. Malachi just means my messenger. Well, what is God's message for his people? The message that God starts off with is a very simple message. His message is this. I have loved you. And the people ask, how have you loved us? Now, suppose for a moment uh, that your wife comes to you or your husband comes to you and says, I love you. And you say back to them, how have you loved me? How will that go down, do you think? Now, I'm not married, but I think I have enough wisdom to know how that will go in a marriage relationship. If somebody says, I love you, and the other person says, well, how have you loved me? Or suppose your father or mother comes to you and says, I love you, and you say, well, how have you loved me? What have you done? Someone I know has observed that it's a particularly effective way of destroying a relationship. There are few comments in the world more precisely determined to destroy a relationship than a question like that. How have you loved me? It's so manipulative, isn't it, and underhanded. The basic idea is, if you love me, well then prove it because I jolly well haven't seen anything else in the last few years or months or whatever it is that would make me think that you love me. <laughs> How offensive. And that's what the people say to God. What's even more amazing, I think, is that God actually answers the question. They say, how have you loved me? How have you loved us? And God says, well, I'll tell you how I've loved you. Because God is so patient, he answers their question. He says in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? God's answer, was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Now, reading those verses, it may not seem much like your idea of what love is. God is saying that he's loved Israel by destroying Esau or Edom, if you like, the descendants of Esau. What God is doing is inviting Israel to compare how God has treated them, Israel, with how God has treated the descendants of Esau. You might remember way back in Genesis 25 that before either Jacob or Esau was born that God had said to their mother, to Rebekah, Two nations are in your womb and two peoples. Two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. God had chosen Jacob over Esau and that love and that election 
was manifest not only in the lives of Jacob and Esau, but also in the lives of their descendants, in the nations of Israel and Edom. God had hated or rejected Esau. God had turned Esau's mountains into a wasteland and left their inheritance to wild dogs. And even when they, as a nation, Esau's descendants as a nation, set themselves to rebuild what God had demolished, God promises to demolish it again. Now, it's not that God was vindictive and cruel. We have to kind of catch a glimpse of the wider picture. What's going on is that the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, they were the ones who were vindictive and cruel and they kept attacking and trying to overthrow Israel. So to destroy Edom, if you like, was to protect Israel. And that's how God had loved them. God had loved Israel by protecting them. Protecting them from their enemies. But evidently, for the people of Israel, that wasn't the kind of love that they expected to receive from God. It wasn't the kind of love that they really wanted in their relationship. It's a bit like children uh, with parents, isn't it? The child wants something, they want a new bike, they don't get it, and what they say is, you don't care about me. And actually, the truth is that the parents have been pouring themselves into their child's life for 16 years, sacrificing themselves, putting their life on hold, changing their child's nappies, helping them to walk, teaching them to read, playing games with them, taking them on family holidays, And the child doesn't get one thing that they want. And they say, you don't love me. How has God loved us? Where do we begin? We could begin with creation, with sunshine, with the stars, with the rain, with the ocean, with the fish, with dolphins, with cats and dogs with the gift of hearing and tasting and seeing and touching and smelling, with the gift of writing and reading great literature. I don't know about you, but I'm an avid reader. Well, not really. I like to think about reading books. But when I do read a book, I always enjoy it. To to read great authors like Jane Austen, who are so clever and witty, or C.S. Lewis, or Charles Dickens, as they craft these imaginary worlds. What a gift from God! To see great artworks. I used to live in Canberra. One of the joys of living in Canberra is the National Gallery. And every year they would have, well, almost every year, they'd have great exhibitions. I remember going to see the Italian Masters. Uh, It was an exhibition uh, of Caravaggio and, you know, all these guys. Amazing. What a gift of God. a, A gift not only to those individuals to be able to craft such great works, but a gift to us, even hundreds of years later, to be able to enjoy those. What about the gifts of swimming at the beach or playing music or listening to music? Not a day goes by when we don't enjoy the loving gifts of God. And that's all without even mentioning 
the gift of God's own Son. That God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us, to reconcile us to him, to deliver us from sin and death and judgment, to give us every spiritual blessing in Christ, to raise us up with Christ and seat uh, seat us with him in the heavenly places, to clothe us in robes of righteousness, to bring us to maturity in Christ, to knit us together into the body of Christ, which is the church. God has given us all these great blessings and yet we don't get one thing that we want and it's so easy, isn't it, to say to God, how have you loved me? Where's the evidence? Well, Peter Adam in his commentary uh, on Malachi writes, if we assess God's love by how he meets our needs, then our greedy hearts will always find him wanting. But if we assess God's love by his mercy in saving us from the death, judgment and hell that we by nature deserve, then we will constantly marvel at his amazing love and amazing grace. It can be so tempting, can't it, to wallow in self-pity and to say to ourselves and to say to other people, nobody loves me. But that's wrong, isn't it? (laughs) Even at our worst, even at our most lonely, even at the times when we feel most unfulfilled, that is always a lie of Satan. Because God has loved us and God still loves us. Maybe not in the ways that we would want by giving us the job or the husband or the wife or the children or the mind or the body that we wanted or wanted to keep. But please don't ever think that just because God hasn't loved you in the ways that you wanted, that he doesn't love you at all. Here is God's oracle. I have loved you, says the Lord. Well, that's the first part of God's message through Malachi, that he loves his people, that he loves us, even though they don't believe it. The second part of God's message is that people treat God worse than they treat their fellow human beings. God begins by appealing in the next section to what is common in human relationships. So he says in verse 6, A son honours his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due me? If I am a master, where is the respect? You me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But again, the response comes back from the people. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? God answers again, you place defiled food on my altar. And again, the people in shocked disbelief, seems like they can't believe a single word that God says to them, They say, how have we defiled you? 
It's startling, I think, and disturbing to think that the people could have been so ignorant of what they were doing. They were living in this kind of dream world where they thought that what they were offering to God was acceptable service. And God is saying to them, no, that's not right at all. You've defiled me. One of the reasons I think that we need to keep hearing the Bible over and over and over again and to keep reading the Bible and to keep meeting with other Christians is because it's so easy to be deceived about where we are at in our relationship with God. It's like, it's like in a marriage. I don't know why I always use marriage illustrations, but I always do. But it's like in a marriage. You know, a bad marriage is a marriage where there's no communication because nobody knows what's going on and how, how the marriage is travelling. And in the same way in our relationship with God, we need to keep hearing God so that we know how our, our relationship is going. The writer of Hebrews says, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Why go to church? Well, here's a good reason. So that you wouldn't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Well, the people of Israel were defiling God and they didn't know it. How had they been defiling him, though? The answer comes in uh, verse 7 and it stretches all the way to the end of that first chapter. First of all, the first way that they were defiling God was by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. The Lord's table is the altar in the temple. And interestingly, I think, they don't actually say that in those words. That is, they don't say the Lord's table is contemptible. But they say it, if you like, by what they're doing. It's not as though everyone's walking around and saying to their uh, fellow Israelites, well, the Lord's table is contemptible. That would be a bit too obvious. But what they do reveals their heart. Verse 8, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? They come to God with these second-rate offerings that not even a human being would accept. And they implore God to be merciful. Giving anything to God is too much for them. It's too much of a burden, verse 13. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. Now, although God blames the priests in verse 6, I think it's clear that by the end of the chapter what is going on with the priests is symptomatic of the whole people. So the defiled sacrifices that the priests offer are the defiled sacrifices that the people bring. So they're all sharing as a nation uh, in this problem. And how does God respond to that? Verse 13, When you bring injured, crippled or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Here's the answer. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. 
they all appeared to still be serving God. They were all still bringing sacrifices. They were all still going to the temple. But they weren't serving God, really, because what they were bringing was rubbish. Now, we don't bring sacrifices of bulls and goats to church on Sunday. Well, at least I don't think we do. <laughs> if we do, maybe, maybe we can have a chat afterwards. But... Um, but how the New Testament takes up the language of sacrifice I think is helpful for thinking about how we can apply what Malachi is saying to us today. How the New Testament applies sacrifice and also the language of priestly service gives us an insight into uh, how we apply these words to us. So the writer of Hebrews, for instance, describes praise and lips that confess the name of Jesus as sacrifices to God. So this comes from Hebrews 13, verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. So you might praise God in church, but your heart's not really in it. You might sing with gusto, but you're all the time thinking about Sunday lunch and whether you set the oven to the right temperature or not. You bring crippled and diseased praise perhaps because you can't be bothered to bring anything better because it seems like a drag or maybe even because you don't think there's anything really that much to be thankful for. You see, it's not that we stop singing. This is what makes it so difficult. It's not that we stop singing. We're still singing. But the sacrifice that we're bringing to God is complete rubbish. The writer of Hebrews also describes doing good and sharing with others as sacrifices that please God. So this is Hebrews 13 verse 16. And do not forget to do good and to share with others for the such sacrifices God is pleased. Uh, Paul describes financial and material gifts that he received from the Philippians as offerings and sacrifices. So Philippians 4, I have received full payment and even more, I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So it's one thing to put money in the collection bag uh, or to send money off to a mission organisation or to give money to somebody in the church who's struggling. But there's a difference between giving the best to God and giving God the dregs, what's left over afterwards, after you've spent everything on yourself. The Old Testament principle was always that the best went to God and the people uh, got the rest, not the other way around. I recently came across an interesting article where uh, the guy was making the point that giving our leftovers to God is not generosity. Uh, and he goes on to point out how that's so readily accepted in the church. He writes, I've seen people giving their leftovers to the church, a lounge that looks like it's been used as a scratching post for three stray cats, toys that are so ratty you would be ashamed to bring them out for a play date at home. 
and somehow the church should be grateful for these gifts. But very often they're not gifts, they're leftovers. It's interesting, isn't it? You see, again, it's not that we stop giving. It's that we give half-heartedly. Paul urges us to give our bodies as living sacrifices. Romans 12, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. God wants us to give every aspect of our lives and ourselves to him. Or Paul describes his proclamation of the gospel as priestly service and he describes his Gentile converts as offerings to God. Romans 15, uh, I've written to you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Or again in Philippians, uh, Philippians 2 verse 17, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and serving service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In other words, in teaching the gospel, we ought to bring our best, not our second best. If we're teaching Sunday school, it's an offering to God. Teaching your children the gospel is a sacrifice to God. Speaking the gospel to a neighbour or a family friend uh, or, or someone that you meet in the supermarket is a sacrifice to God and we ought to give God the best because half-hearted, distracted service is not pleasing to God. Now it's worth saying, I think, that there's a sense in which everything that we bring to God is imperfect in one way or another, isn't it? I mean, even our, even our best sacrifices, our best our offerings are marred by our sinfulness. And it's also true that the things that God accepts are only the things that are offered through faith in Christ Jesus. But the difference between that, I think, our efforts are offered through faith in Christ, the difference between those and what Malachi is talking about is kind of like the difference between a professional who hastily slaps something together like a, a graphic designer maybe, you know, and uh, their plate, that's their job. You ask them to do a job and they just slap something together. It's a dodgy job. It's like the difference between that and the child, you know, at Sunday school who makes the pencil jar out of the old tomato can and the paddle pops glued on the outside. It's not particularly fine, but they've done it with their heart. They've made it as a gift to their parents. Our gifts to God, if you like, ought to be like the empty can decorated with the paddle pop sticks, lacking finery, but pleasing to God. So the relationship between God and his people was not going well because they didn't believe that he loved them. And it was also not going well because they despised God by bringing these second-rate sacrifices. And the last relationship issue that we're going to deal with in this talk comes from those verses that Chris read earlier from chapter 2, 
verse 10 to 16. In verse 13, God says to the people, Another thing that you do, you flood the Lord's altars with tears, you weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And again, the people ask, why? Why doesn't God pay attention? And the answer is that the people have broken faith with God again, but this time by marrying the daughters of foreign gods. So verse 11 Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob. And even though he brings offerings to the Lord uh, Almighty. The issue here is not simply marrying a foreigner because after all, uh, Boaz married Ruth, didn't he? She was a, a Moabitess and she eventually became the you know, ancestor of King David. The issue was not marrying a foreigner. The issue was marrying women who were committed to other gods. And the same issue comes up in the New Testament as well. So Paul warns people about marrying uh, a person who isn't a Christian. He tells the Christians to marry the Corinthians to marry in the Lord. Is a, it's always a sensitive issue to talk about these things because almost everybody's life, life is touched in one way or another by that is, issue. But it's stunning, I think, how often Christians marry or start going out with a person who doesn't know Jesus. Uh, I can think of five or six cases in the last year alone, just off the top of my head, uh, where that has happened uh, and God says that's not okay. It wasn't okay in the Old Testament and it's not okay in the New Testament era either. How can you marry and commit to the most intimate relationship in life with somebody who's committed to gods other than Jesus? Whether those gods are the gods of Hinduism uh, or the gods of Islam or the gods uh, of Western materialism is largely irrelevant. God says that his intent, his purpose for us is not to marry people committed to other gods but people who are committed to him. Now that doesn't mean, as Paul says, that if you're married to somebody who isn't a Christian that you need to divorce them, not at all. The point is we ought not to pursue those relationships. But what's worse uh, in Malachi's day, I think, is it goes a long way beyond that is that the people were not just marrying people committed to other gods but they were leaving their existing marriages in order to do it. So look at verse 14. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. 
So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. God hates divorce. That's a painful word because so many people now in our world live lives that are scarred by divorce. But God's purpose in marriage is that two people become one and they remain one. And whenever marriage breaks up, it's always grievous to God. Needless to say, of course, it's always grievous to the people who are involved as well. And those wounds heal very slowly. But how much more detestable is it what the people of Malachi's day were doing to deliberately divorce so that they could marry somebody else? And worse, to marry other people who were committed to other gods. What's the end result of all that? It's horrifying, actually. God says he won't accept these people's sacrifices. Verse 12. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. <laughs> even if they weep and wail and flood the altar with tears, God won't listen. I don't think there's anything more terrifying than that idea that God might stop listening to us. I don't think the principle here is merely that God stops listening to us uh, if, you know, if people get divorced and marry non-Christian people. I, you know, that's not the, uh, the main point here. The underlying principle is that God stops listening when our cries to him are undergirded by rampant hypocrisy. God, st- God stops listening when our cries to him, when our tears, if you like, before the altar of forgiveness, when our cries to God are undergirded by this rampant hypocrisy. That is, we come to God seeking forgiveness when we fully intend at the next available opportunity to sort of fling ourselves into sin again. We come to church offering our praise but secretly we nurture that 20-year-old grudge that we've never, just never been able to get over. We offer to God our money but it's money which has been earned through underhanded and deceitful means. Underhanded business, uh, piracy, whatever it might be. Service for God that masks our hypocrisy is not okay. God is saying we need to repent of our hypocrisy, we need to confess it to God, and we need to seek His grace in Jesus Christ. Well, in the next two talks, we'll think a little bit more about God's remedy for the people's hypocrisy. I don't want to deal with that remedy just yet because I think it's helpful for the moment to stop and to reflect on the sobering possibility that our relationship with God and the relationship of our churches with God might not actually be going as swimmingly as we think they are.
God says, I have loved you. And we say, how have you loved us? God says, you've defiled me. And we say, I'm sorry God, I just can't say it. God says, I won't listen because of your hypocrisy. And we say, I'm not sure what hypocrisy you're talking about. We'll look at the remedy in the next two talks, but for the moment I think it helps us to sit and to be open and honest with God and to plead that he would show us our sin in order that we can repent. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it's a sobering uh, word that Malachi had for your people. It's a sobering message uh, for us because, Lord, the deceitfulness of our own hearts and the deceitfulness of sin clouds our vision so that we often cannot see with the clarity that we ought to have. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes and show us our sin, not, Lord, so that we would be crushed by it, but so that we could turn to you again in faith and cling to the cross and plead your mercy and know your grace. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen.